Hi, my name is Rondine. I recently moved to Merbu North in the Streslecki Ranges of South Gippsland. And this is the Our People podcast. I'm speaking at my home in Merbu North, which is a beautiful town in the Streslecki Ranges. We're sitting at my dining room table and looking out at a lovely view of rolling hills and farmland. Yeah, very, very pretty. It's certainly brings your blood pressure down. <laughs> um, it's very peaceful. Uh, I, I just love the view. It's the view that sold me on this area and uh, this block of land. Yeah, it makes me feel really happy being here pretty much all the time. Every time I look out the window, the view is always changing. Uh, the light keeps changing. I love seeing the local wildlife in my back garden and in the surrounding farmland and the bird life. It's it's very different to living in the suburbs and, yeah, definitely a good tree change. I've lived on four continents <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually lived. I love to travel, um, but I have to live physically on four different continents. So Asia, Sri Lanka, Kuwait, which is Asia, then um, Europe, uh, England, uh, the USA and Australia. So I was uh, born in uh, Sri Lanka and then at age four, my family immigrated to Kuwait, which is in the Middle East. Kuwait is, it's a very different lifestyle. Um, well, in most of my childhood and adolescence was there. I went to an international school um, and learned Arabic, uh, learned Hindi actually, because the, it was a convent school and the nuns were Indian. And it, it's we're part of a small expatriate community. So you, you end up seeing the same people most weekends because it's just, you know, we had some friends who are Kuwaitis, but mainly people from overseas, from the States, from England, from um, no one from Australia, but India, Sri Lanka. Uh, so it's a, quite a small community of friends. It's quite a sheltered upbringing because there's no nightclubs uh, going out. I mean, and it's a dry country, so alcohol's not freely available. It is available on the black market, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it's a tiny little country in the desert. There's not a lot to do. So you end up going to the beach a lot <laughs> or your beach club and seeing the same expatriate friends and pretty yeah, innocent lifestyle in a way. It, it was extremely safe. Well, before Saddam's army invaded, um, you didn't have to lock your car or your house. So there's zero crime pretty much because the penalties are very severe and most people are comfortable and there's no income tax. So that's why people go there is for, for work, basically. It's not really for social life. It's, it's just a pretty sheltered life. Maybe a little bit boring in that way, but you get used to it. Um, it's not very green, like the green areas are all man-made. But people, uh, the Kuwaitis themselves are very wealthy. As you know, it's got oil. Most people are, like expatriates are there for the jobs and they... And they have a pretty decent lifestyle. My, both my parents worked, um, and it was it was better lifestyle than Sri Lanka, and better opportunities for for me and my brother. And yeah, they may have still been living there if not for Saddam's army. I mean, probably until retirement, my parents intended to work and live there. Yeah, I was uh, eight, well, eighteen or nineteen at the time, and um, I'd just done my. A-level exams, which is a British um, high school system, and I couldn't even get my results. I'd finished my exams that summer, and then the invasion was in August, uh, 
1990. So I had to, it's only when we went all the way to England that I got my exam results. But yeah, it had some, obviously some traumatic moments as well. Our lives were turned upside down overnight. Everyone in Kuwait, pretty much, the, the locals as well as the expatriates. The first sort of couple of weeks, there was bombs going off, and it's quite a story. Like, my mom and I were—we had a machine gun pointed at us by on the first day of the invasion. We we'd gone into Kuwait City. I just got a summer job at my mom's office, uh, my first job, and we went into work that day. And the, we had the driver dropped us off, and he'd left. He, we didn't know what was happening—that the army had come in overnight. And there were some strange scenes, and uh, we were walking towards the office, and uh, we heard machine gun firing, and uh, we saw these people running towards us. So we kept walking, and then the Iraqi soldiers came, and yeah, they stopped us at machine gun point and asked where we were going. So we said we're going to work, and they said, oh, there's no work today, go home. And we thought, that's why are the Kuwaiti soldiers talking like that? You know, we didn't even, we had no idea these were Iraqis who'd come in over. Their army was a million soldiers. Uh, and the population of, the whole population of Kuwait is 1.7 million people. So, yeah, and then, then we, and we managed to get back home. We had to get a lift with some people leaving from the car park and we stopped cars. And then this one guy said, okay, get in, I'll take you home because we had no way of getting back home. And on the way back here, yeah, we saw army and more machine gun firing and things and did get home. And then my dad had his stories, like some of the people from his company had issues. And, and then we were there for about probably six weeks after the invasion. And during that time, yeah, there was bombs going off and we saw the supermarket shelves were starting to empty. That's when it started to get worrying because Kuwait imports all its food. It hardly grows anything. It's a desert, so when things started emptying on the shelves, my dad and, yeah, they made a decision to leave. And driving all the way was, yeah, I think we were the first, probably the first family to do that. Because a lot of people took flights if they could. But I think by then there was no more flights. Yeah, so there's a lot of hairy moments as well. We had British passports and we had to leave behind the passports because they were taking hostages, British and American as hostages. So we had to ditch the passports and get false travel documents to say that we're Sri Lankan. We got that from the Sri Lankan embassy and made the decision to leave and drove actually through Iraq brave to do that. My dad spoke Arabic and that helped because not many British and Americans learned the language. They couldn't speak Arabic. So we, he was able to convince them that we're not British because we were questioned and stopped and basically had to put everything we could take in the car and food for the journey as well. We had to leave behind a house full of things apart from a few personal things and, um, and food for the journey. My brother was 10 at the time. Uh, and uh, drove through Iraq. We spent only two days in Iraq, managed to get through checkpoints and things, and then into Turkey. And again, it was yeah, some issues getting into Turkey. They wanted payment, which we didn't have. And so from Turkey to Bulgaria, then into Yugoslavia, which was still one country at that time, <laughs> before that war. <laughs> and then Austria, Germany, Holland, and then by ferry to England. And it took about a month. So, and on the way, yeah, because we'd left everything behind, and um, the Kuwaiti currency had been devalued. So it was sort of, there was difficult times. 
my mom's company had wired some funds to us and we managed to get through, but it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't easy. Some other friends of ours, uh, they left later than we did and they had actually left it too late and then the only way they could get out was through from Iraq into Iran. From Iran, I think they ended up driving all the way to Pakistan and then they flew to Sri Lanka. They were stuck at the Iraq-Iran border for a month. So we were lucky, we got through in two days. Then their conditions were really not good because there was about a million people or something at the border trying to get through and they were not being allowed into the other countries so that hygiene was not good, conditions were not good. So you can just imagine, I think their son got dehydrated and they had a lot tougher time. But they, they, it worked out you know, fine, now, now they're doing very well. But they went through a lot of very tough time too. So everyone has their own stories from that time. Actually, I think the first sort of refugees, uh, quote-unquote, to arrive from Kuwait to England by car. <laughs> when we arrived, and my dad's car had Arabic number plates. And driving through Europe with Arabic number plates, a lot of people <laughs> did a double take to <laughs> look at where did these people come from. And when we arrived in England, they were really surprised. You drove all the way from Kuwait, and it had been about month or six weeks after the invasion so I don't think anyone had done that so far and maybe no one else did a lot of people just took flights but then the flight stopped it was I guess meant to be because things did work out for the best in the end and England was was good too and then my parents are now in Australia so they came here on a holiday and they moved in 2001 I think about six years before I did and they love it here they've got a much better lifestyle here than probably even England they've got a caravan they're always off on trips and <laughs> there's more freedom for them the weather's better than England which is cold and dreary so it worked out well it usually does most most things in life may seem difficult or traumatic at the time but they usually end up working out for the best in hindsight it certainly shapes you as a person. I guess you realize what's really important. Like when you have to leave behind everything, basically, a whole house full of things that you've gathered over the years and memories and photographs and you just take whatever you can put in your car. I guess maybe liken it to a bushfire coming or something where you leave it and you don't know if you'll ever see that again. It makes you realize what's really important, which is not material things. For me, I've always, I guess, been courageous, but it's given me courage and all these other big moves that I've made are not as difficult, I guess, after, after me. I was only a teenager at the time, but it makes other things like COVID seem not very, not very big at all. When you see the supermarket shelves and toilet paper running out, you know, actually there's a lot bigger things that can happen in life. Oh, well, I had done actually three years of schooling in England myself. Um, so from age 13 to 16, while my family were in Kuwait, I was in boarding school in England. So I had, I had lived in England. My parents and brother actually hadn't. Um, but I didn't like England that much. It was, it was cold and I used to wait for some holidays to go back to Kuwait and then not want to go back to England. Um, so living there, I didn't really want to go, but that was the only place we could go because we had the passports. Um, and it was, um, I guess it was a shock to the system, even for my parents, obviously the weather. 
uh, snow. They'd never lived in snow after Sri Lanka and Kuwait. I had, but they hadn't. Um, initially, we had to get some help from the government, and then my dad went back to Kuwait. Um, so once he started working, we did buy a house in England, and my mum, brother, and I lived in there. Dad was away for four years, and he'd come back on some, on holidays. Things got better. My brother went to a good school. I, I went to a very good university, and I qualified as a software engineer, so it, it was okay. But the, even things like taking the train and <laughs> in the snow, and <laughs> uh, which we'd never experienced, Kuwait was a much easier life. Yeah. We drove everywhere and weather was good. Things did turn out for the best, but initially it wasn't easy to mm. settle. Got my first job um, in a company in England, a software engineering company, and they transferred me to their office in Boston, USA. So moved to USA on my own initially, and then my partner at the time got a job as well, and he moved to the US. We lived in the US for eight years, um, four years in Boston, four years in Seattle, which is a stunningly beautiful place, which is in the northwest of the US, uh, just south of Vancouver, Canada. So I just fell in love with the scenery. I've always loved nature, and there was snow-capped mountains and stun really stunning scenery everywhere. In the meantime, I'd had a couple of career changes as well, uh, from from software engineering to Montessori early childhood education. Wow. <laughs> Worked with children, which is very different to computers, but I, I loved it. Um, moved back to London for three years. I had um, applied for residency in Australia because my parents had moved here. I got the residency and then I had to move here within five years or I would have lost the residency. So I, I figured my parents, of course, wanted me to come here. No point losing it. I might as well give it a go. <laughs> so I moved then from London to Melbourne in 2007. Yeah, again, no regrets. Um, it's been a really, really good lifestyle in Australia. Melbourne's a great city. Victoria's a beautiful state. It's just right for this time in my life. I, actually, before I moved to Merbu North, I was looking at moving to Southeast Asia. Um, and my mom didn't want me to go overseas again because <laughs> I'd lived on a different continent to my family for 12 years. And I'd finally ended up on the same continent in Australia. So she says, suggested, what about country Victoria? So I started looking and yeah, for about six to eight months, I explored mainly Gippsland area. And I'd been to Merbu North um, to, to see some friends uh, a few months before that. And I loved this area. It reminded me of Tuscany or rolling hills of English countryside and just loved the views everywhere. Never thought I would end up living here. So yeah, I looked at houses, looked at land and then found this block of land, which is actually perfect. It has a view. It's close to the town. It's a really nice community. Melbourne North actually a very friendly community as well, I should say, and I'm finding a lot of people have moved here from all around Victoria, Melbourne. So people who are here want to be here. They've moved here for a reason. They all, I guess, have some sense of adventure, courage to make a move. They love nature, they love scenery, they love the area. So it's it's different vibe to being in the suburbs or the, of Melbourne or in the city. It's beautiful. Um, it's easier to be happy when you're surrounded by beauty, just like in Seattle and <laughs> beautiful rolling hills, nature. I'm always happiest in nature. The view keeps changing. I see wildlife from my windows. 
it's definitely a more freeing, joyful life, and I feel like I can now live life rather than work to live. The Our People podcast series is produced for South Gippsland Shire Council. To hear more stories from South Gippsland like mine, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about South Gippsland and South Gippsland Shire Council, visit southgippsland.vic.gov.au.